Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Conroe Bible Church. If you're one of our guests, we're glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, before we begin, I'm going to uh, to relay just a few announcements, and then we'll begin our time of of worship. Um, men's and women's Bible studies. Um, men's started a new Bible study this past week. Um, it's not too late to get involved in that. You can uh, find the details about it out on Church Center. Um, the Church Center app, or you can get there through the Bible study page on our website. Um, and also, the women have a, a Bible study beginning um, June 9th, um, and so you can check that out in the same places and get signed up to be a part of it. At the end of the month, May 29th, after church, we're going to have a celebration um, of uh, Dave Schneider, who's been here forever, <laughs> or approximately 35 years. Um, and we need you to sign up for that if you would like to be a part. Um, you can give us a head count by signing up on Church Center um, in the events section um, to let us know that you'll be there. And I believe that today um, is the deadline for signing up. Um, so if you can't figure out how, give me a call. Um, I will help get that taken care of. Um, but please let us know if you'd like to be a part of it. Um, also, July, um, upcoming kids camp. So you can go ahead and sign your kids up for that um, through the website or church center. And then for our ladies, uh, if you have not already, please save the date for October. Um, October 21st to 23rd is, the, uh, is going to be the women's retreat. And then just a few months later in the next year, um, a women's conference on February 25th. So be sure and save those dates um, and information will be coming out um, in the future for it. Um, would you guys stand up with us and uh, we'll begin our time of worship. as we 
son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen. life that you have given for us. We thank you for the life that we now live. We ask that you would draw us close this morning, that you would teach us, make us more like Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're one of our kiddos, K through five, you can be dismissed to Sunshine Kids Club.
Have you ever shared your heart with a safe group of people? One of the joys of participating in community is the opportunity and the privilege of getting to share our hearts, to be able to go a little bit deeper than just uh, scores from the games last night and, and how the weather is and what the vacation plans are, but to really go to the heart level. When we participate in community and, and go to the heart level, uh, we open our hearts to God's word in, in greater ways. And within community, we're able to love and challenge one another uh, to live in loving response to God's word to encourage and to admonish one another. When we share our hearts in community, we open ourselves to each other and we get to hear life stories and that draws us to worship God in greater ways because we see his fingerprints all over our lives and we get to hear how he's working in others' lives and, and through them as well. And that kind of vulnerability draws us to love one another in greater ways. All of this relationship building that takes place in true community takes time over to build up trust and, and uh, confidence and confidentiality. Uh, but it's a beautiful thing when it happens, right? And ultimately, it opens our hearts to God so that he can do that transforming work where he changes us from the inside out as we cooperate in obedience and his spirit is at work in us. Well, today in God's word, we get to hear Jesus tell us something about the nature and character of his heart. In fact, it's the only place in the gospels that he does this. And it's not a safe place. In fact, there are a number of Pharisees around, the very ones that, uh, as we read throughout all the Gospels, are there to plot, to kill, to destroy, to do away with Jesus. But he is there, and he's going to share his heart. So I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew 11 with me. Well-known passage. And I hope it excites you even just turning to it as we think about Jesus saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. We're in a sermon series where we are looking at Jesus. We're trying to get, gain a fresh understanding of who he is. And that's not just for uh, knowledge in our heads so that we can feel like we're smarter and, and uh, talk more intellectually about the Bible. But it is so that we can come to love him more deeply as we understand him and to follow him more completely. That's what we're doing in this sermon series, and today we're going to turn to Matthew 11. We're going to see Jesus make statements about his humility, and that's an incredible thing when you think about who he is and his position, and here he is humble, gentle and humble in heart. And so we're going to look at that, and, and in the three movements that we have in chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, we'll get to see Jesus defer to the Father and praise the Father and the relationship that he's got there and as he looks at what the Father is doing. And then we'll see him uh, make a statement about him. He's fully aware of who he is. And then we'll see him 
make an invitation that is just incredible. And I think it will bring joy to everyone here. It'll bring relief to some people here. And perhaps even salvation if you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Matthew 11. And in verses 25 and 26, we see this, that Jesus acknowledges his father's plan of redemption. In these two verses, he is going to acknowledge the father with praise. Jesus shows humility when he does that. He doesn't take credit after all, he's the one that came in the incarnation, right? He left the glory of heaven to come to this miserable fallen world and experience everything that we're experiencing without sin. He's the one that lived and walked the nation of Israel. He's the one that gathered 12 disciples to train and equip to carry on his mission. But he doesn't take the credit here. In fact, he's going to praise God, praise the Father for his plan of redemption. And this is what he says in verses 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. In this brief prayer, Jesus praises the Father. And to praise the Father is to acknowledge the Father, to acknowledge his character and his ways. And that is what Jesus is pointing to here. He is acknowledging the redemptive plan of the Father. Now, when we pray, we often start with adoration, right? Changes our perspective on life. It honors God by calling him according to his character, according to his name. And that's what happens here. Jesus extends the praise. He extends the adoration by saying, Father. He has this intimate term of sonship. And then he says, Lord of heaven and earth. And he, and he reminds us that God the Father is sovereign over all. And so when Jesus praises him for his plan of redemption, he's saying, you are the one who can carry out your plan. You are able to work your will. And so Jesus does that here in this praise, prayer of praise. With simple humility, Jesus has deferred to the Father as the one who has this plan. These things here in verse 25 refer to the activities of the presence of the kingdom of heaven, the, the disciples going out. In fact, they had just been sent out at, at the beginning of chapter 10. When this passage comes up in Luke chapter 10, it is following the, the return of the 72 that have gone out. So Jesus has sent people out. And they have been proclaiming the kingdom of heaven. They have cast out demons. They have healed the sick. In our day, we would say the words and works of the disciples are to present the gospel, to make disciples, and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has given us to do. God's sovereign plan is to hide these things from the intelligent, but to reveal them to infants. What does Jesus mean when he prays words like that? Is he saying this is only, this is not for anybody who's academically oriented, nobody who's intellectual, but it's just for those who are still teething 
and, and drinking at the breast. Now, Jesus is not talking about academics any more than he's talking about the size or the age of an infant. He's talking about those who deem themselves as wise and intelligent because they find themselves to be self-sufficient. They don't need God. Whereas the infant represents the one who understands and recognizes his or her neediness and is teachable and is dependent upon God. Infants don't raise themselves. They are dependent. So that's what Jesus is saying here. Now, it is a word of judgment. It's not a word of injustice. Previously, here in verses 20 to 24, Jesus had pronounced judgment on three different cities that uh, had witnessed his words and works. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, and woe, Bethsaida, and woe to Capernaum. You remember Capernaum, the, the home base of Jesus in Galilee, where he did much of his ministry. And this is what he says to Capernaum. He says, you know, if Sodom, you remember evil Sodom? If, if Sodom had witnessed what you've witnessed, they would have repented and they would remain to this day. Those are strong words of judgment. Jesus offers those words because those generations, those people, the cities have rejected Jesus. Now, there's still time for them to come to Jesus, but they rejected him. They deemed themselves wise and intelligent, that they did not need him. Those with humility, recognizing their own neediness, come to Jesus. Jesus has shown his deference to the Father by sending out praise. He sent the twelve. He passed judgment on those who rejected him. And then he says in verse 26, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. He's saying, Lord, Father, you delight in your plan. This is your plan. You're going to work your plan. And it is what you delight in. Because again, as Lord of heaven and earth, he can work his will and work his plan. Well, Jesus, in this prayer of praise, defers to the Father by declaring the Father's work. He reveals the motivation of the Father. They would bring him delight to see people receive the offer of the kingdom of heaven. And that all receive the same care by turning to Jesus humbly. Jesus defers to the Father through praise. We do this at school or work, right? We are involved in a project with somebody, but we want to honor the one who did the majority of the work, and so we praise them, even though we might have participated. We do it in athletics, in, in team sports, right? Everybody had a, a role. Everybody was necessary to it. Everybody participated. But the one that had the victorious strategy or the one that came through in the clutch, we honor them with praise. Jesus is praising the Father, and it shows his humility in action here. 
He participated in the plan of God and he deferred to God with the Father with praise. His praise reinforces the commitment of Jesus to do the Father's will. In the next verse, we see that Jesus is fully aware of his high and holy position. He has an exclusive and a unique relationship with the Father. Jesus is fully aware of his high and holy position. Now, when we speak of humility, we often say that it is having a right view of ourselves, a right understanding of ourselves, not too low and not too high. Some people put it this way, that humility is not thinking less about ourselves. It's just thinking about ourselves less. That we aren't worried and concerned. That we find our significance and our security and our adequacy in Jesus and our identity is in him. That's humility. Well, Jesus has a relationship with the Heavenly Father, and he's going to declare that too as well. And so we get to see this, and I think it's important that we see this in a section on humility, that Jesus is not thinking less of himself. He's not putting himself down. He's going to let us know fully and completely that he has a high and heavenly position, a holy position with the Father. He has a right understanding of who he is. So note the description of this relationship in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This passage is an important Christological claim. Jesus is claiming that he is God here that he is equal to the Father, and that no one knows the Father except Jesus, no one knows the Father like Jesus, and no one knows the Son like the Father, fully and completely. It's a declaration that reminds us of what Jesus often says in the Gospel of John. He often refers to himself there as doing what the Father tells him to do, saying what the Father tells him to say, going where the Father tells him to go. He is committed to do the Father's will, and that is an act of humility on his part. But here we get to see that he is equal to the Father. It's an important claim. He doesn't walk around with a, a, a false humility. He doesn't say, oh, I am nothing. I am worthless. I am just a man. Jesus knows directly who he is. He's fully aware of that. And so he talks about this exclusive and unique relationship with the Father, and he makes this claim of being the anointed one, the expected one of being Christ. So I want you to think about me, think about with me through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, a number of ways that Jesus is validated by the Father in this role. At his baptism, the Father came out and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And then there was the testing in the wilderness which validated him as God the Son. He's worshipped as the Son of God in chapter 14, and he's confessed as the Messiah, the Christ, by Peter in chapter 16. He's validated at the transfiguration, and we see him at the trials and the crucifixion, the resurrection. 
and in the very closing statement of this gospel, he is associated with the Father and the Holy Spirit in the words of baptism. Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully aware of that position. And I think it's important to note that in light of his humility. Because we would expect someone that is high and holy to be rather austere, rather removed from those of us that are broken, incomplete, given to sin of the flesh occasionally. Jesus has revealed himself as God the Son, and he's validated by the Father in the Gospel of Matthew. And this is an immediate relationship. It's a, it's a deep existential relationship. It's an intuitive relationship. Jesus and the Father know each other. They are two of the three persons of the Trinity, one being three persons. They have a relationship that has been eternal and perfect in love, an exclusive, essential relationship. Their relationship might be compared to a, uh, a husband and wife or two good friends who know each other. It, it wouldn't be on the level of uh, a husband and wife knowing and describing each other with their favorite clothing or their personal interests or their hobbies or where they work. It would be more on the level of understanding one another with just a look, knowing what the motivations of their heart are knowing their fears and anxieties and what brings them joy. We do that with friendship as well. That gives us a better idea of a father and son. Because when we talk about Jesus being God, it's so easy just to write it off and say, I'll never understand that. This is a deep personal relationship. And that gives us hope because he's going to invite us into that relationship. Not only is Jesus a son with an exclusive and unique relationship, but he's the sole mediator of the knowledge of the Father. We're told that in John chapter 1, that no one knows the Father, but Jesus has come to explain him. He is the one who provides knowledge of the Father. Jesus has a right understanding of himself. He's fully aware he's King of kings and Lord of lords, that he's the Redeemer that he is fully God and fully man, that he is doing the will of the Father. He knows who he is, and that's a sign of humility. And he's obedient to the Father. He knows that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is our Jesus so what would he have to do with us? Would he have to do anything? It's a legitimate question. As I said, one who is so high and holy, what would he want to do with us? Because each one of us know how broken we can be, how, how sinful we can pursue this world sinfully. In the last three verses of this chapter, we discover he's not removed. He is a personal God. And, and not only is he not removed, and not only has he pursued us through the incarnation and continues to pursue us through the Spirit, but he invites us. He wants to make sure that everybody knows they are welcome. And that's what we see in the last three verses of this chapter, that Jesus is approachable in his humility. 
Jesus is accessible. And that gives us great hope for one who has such a high and holy position. His invitation is to an intimate relationship. We gather in community with the goal, the delight of learning how to share our hearts with one another. Jesus invites us into that type of relationship with him. And certainly he's, he's present when we do that as followers of Jesus. But this is what he says in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, says Jesus. An open invitation to all. The only qualification here, it's not a very high bar, is that you are weary and heavy laden. In other words, you have tried long enough and haven't succeeded. Or you've been oppressed and things have been thrown at you to do. That's an incredible relief to know that we don't have to clean up our act. We don't have to figure out life. We don't have to do anything but bring our weariness and our burdens to Jesus Christ. Jesus invites the discouraged the frustrated, the cynical, the disenchanted. Uh, I think of a lot of writings by Brennan Manning that reminds us of the unconditional love of God, the weary, the empty. As one writer put it, Jesus invites those whose lives feel like they are running up a descending escalator. Jesus invites the conscientious who try as hard as they can and still feel like God is disappointed with them. And Jesus invites those who are overloaded, feel like they'll never measure up, never be complete, and they suspect that God's patience is wearing thin with them. Jesus makes an invitation to all of us, regardless of where we're at, regardless of what you think the perfect Christian life is, and you're not there. Or even if you got the arrogance that you are there, he invites you to come to him. Because what he offers is rest. It's important to recognize that this invitation goes out to everyone. If you don't yet know Jesus Christ, then you are weary because you're going through this universe on your own, in your own strength, and you're alone. And it can wear you out. And you are heavy laden because whatever you've attempted to try and do to be good and moral has not been enough. And it's a stretch at times, and it's hard. Or perhaps you've listened to other religions and you've come up with all these checklists of things to do to appease the gods or to become a god. Jesus Christ offers life to you. The good news is that you can enter into a relationship with him. Your life is broken because you're a sinner. That's what scripture tells us. We're all sinners. We're born that way. We don't measure up to the glorious standard of God's righteousness. And there's a penalty to pay for that called death. 
an eternal separation from a living God. But the good news is we can enter into that relationship because Jesus paid that penalty. He died on the cross for your sin in your place, was buried and rose again. He was victorious over sin and death. And by simply trusting him and his death and resurrection for salvation, your sins will be forgiven and you receive the free gift of eternal life. That's the invitation Jesus makes to you if you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus uses the word all here, and he's got followers, not just his 12, but he's got others with him here in Matthew 11, and he invites everyone. That applies to us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who've committed our lives to him and have received forgiveness of sins. And he lives in us. Our eternal life is his life in us. And so his invitation goes out to us. His promise is rest to all who come for, to him. And his desire for you and I to find rest is greater than our desire. Because he understands it a whole lot better than we do. And he offers it to us. How is that possible? Well, Jesus says how to do it in verses 29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take on the yoke of Jesus. Typically, a, a, a yoke signified submission to something. So when it was used of the oral law or the Old Testament, it meant being put under submission to that. It was used of the Israelites under submission to foreign oppressors. There's always the idea of oppression, especially with the oral law that the rabbis passed down that extended out. And then when the Pharisees got involved, it became a heavy burden to try and follow Jesus. Jesus' yoke is a metaphor for discipleship to him. It's simply being committed to him, having an allegiance or a devotion or a loyalty to him and to nothing else. That's what Jesus calls us to do. And the good news is that he's discipling us to himself, that he takes that yoke with us. The Pharisees were infamous for weighing people down with all kinds of rules and regulations. Jesus frees us from that because he invites us to a relationship, not a charted out religion that has to be kept and checked off and made sure that it's all done. Because nobody can keep all these procedures and policies. They couldn't do it in the Pharisees' day, can't do it in our day. And so what does it produce? Well, for those two or three things that you can keep, it produces an arrogance and pride. Look at me. I'm religious. I am good. I am perfect. And for those ones that you can't keep, it produces hypocrisy. We don't get away with that. And what it does in the meantime is it sharpens those skills of critical spirit and being judgmental as you look at those who can't keep up with you in the checklist. That was true in the days of the Pharisees. It's true in our day. It's even true for evangelical followers of Jesus Christ because we tend to default to a legalism and we tend to view God as we would be if we were God 
and think that we're disappointed with us if we don't keep up with whatever we've set out to be the perfect Christian. He's calling us into relationship, to know him, to understand him, to walk with him. He calls us to a loyalty. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, you're familiar with that, warns us of giving us our, our, our loyalty to a world system that is all around us. And when we do that, we, we pursue pleasure and, and prestige and power and all the things that go with it. At the least, it distracts us from our devotion to Jesus, and at worst, it causes us to keep going down that path of following those things. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 11 not to be distracted from the simplicity of a pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Distraction is just simple things. In Romans 12, he tells us not to be conformed to the world. We're immersed in it. But he tells us not to become a product of the world system that is anti-Christ and against what Jesus wants in this world and what he can produce. The signs of conformity to the world are all around us. Addiction to screens, lack of deep relationships, overscheduled, lack of sleep, too quick to rely on Amazon for not only what we want, but our comfort and our dependence as well. I said normal things that go through our lives. I didn't say sex, drugs, rock and roll. Because one of the problems is that when we pursue all those other things, we still have issues. We're still not at rest inside. And, and so we do to start to self-medicate with sex and porn and drugs and alcohol. And those issues become really deep. And Jesus offers, he invites everyone, whether you're stuck there or whether you're in a good season of following him, to enjoy this intimate relationship and find rest in him, regardless of where we are in life. No matter the condition of being weary or heavy laden, Jesus invites us to him, to a rich and full and abundant relationship. Jesus calls us to himself. And when we commit to him, our discipleship is to him. He says, learn from me. He's not saying just imitate me. Don't just put on the WWJD bracelet and, 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 and try to act just like Jesus would act. But let Jesus renew your mind. Let him change your heart so that the affections of Jesus become your affections. And you pursue those things. And you learn how to love people and are willing to share the gospel with people as well. Jesus is calling us to himself that we might learn from him through his word, through obedience, through the work of the spirit in our lives. And it's a great thing that regardless of where we're at, he offers life. We find Jesus' invitation compelling because he is gentle and humble. That's incredible, isn't it? When we think about the great rulers of this world, when we think about the great authorities of this world, we don't see a lot of gentleness and humility expressed among them. We see a lot of authority and, and lording it over. Jesus is gentle and humble. When you think about just his life and ministry, as I mentioned earlier, the incarnation, leaving heaven to enter earth through the birth canal. 
a baby who had to be fed and had to be changed and had to learn to walk and learn to talk. That's humility. That's our Jesus. Uh, Jesus who would serve the Father, certainly through miracles, but he would pursue to seek and to save the lost. He would go up and touch lepers. He was moved by love and compassion for those that did not know God, had not heard the offer of the kingdom. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the one who chose 12 plain knuckleheads to be his disciples. And I say knuckleheads because they were forever forgetting what Jesus said. And most of the time they weren't listening because they were off discussing who was the greatest among them. What role they would play in the kingdom when Jesus took over and kicked out the Romans. Uh, I love what John Eldridge says about the 12 and Jesus' humility. He says, this is the absolute proof that the humility of Jesus is genuine, that he would keep working with these 12. Here they are after about, well, no, this is not a, around three years yet, but it's been a couple of years. The disciples who often tried to keep people from him, and they would eventually abandon and deny him. Jesus is humble. Jesus is gentle. We gravitate toward people like that. We would all love to have that in a boss or a teacher or a friend. Jesus exemplifies the characteristics here of being gentle and humble, that he wants his followers, he wants us to exemplify, to manifest in this world. We see that throughout the letters of the New Testament. He's humble and he's gentle. Discipleship to Jesus, commitment to him is like a deep dive into kindness. The more that we hang out with Jesus, the better we get to know him. And the better we get to know him, the, the more we realize how much he loves us. And we learn that he's never outmatched by our personality quirks, our sins, our failures, our insecurities, our doubts. He simply wants to have this intimate relationship, this ever-deepening friendship that he offers to us. And it's available through his word, reading his word, meditating on his word, processing his word for application with others, through prayer, just talking to Jesus. Jesus loves when we pray because we're communing directly with him. Loves to see our obedience in the spirits. The result we are told of accepting this invitation is rest for our souls. Rest. Completeness. Contentment. It's that word shalom. A restoration of the way things should be, the ultimate well-being. And that's what we all want in this frantic, overscheduled life that we live. We long for rest. Not just eight hours of sleep. We long for a deep, settled feeling in our soul. And that's what Jesus offers. It comes 
by being attached to him. It comes by being in communion with him. And that's certainly eternally, but it's also for right now to experience his peace and his love and his joy and all the fruit of the spirit as we're changed from the inside out as we hang out with him. I think it's interesting that he says rest for our souls, not rest for our bodies. Because following Jesus does require toil and labor. If you've served Jesus, you know that it can be exhausting to serve as he has called you to do. But you always know that Jesus shows up and sustains you. Grace is never earned, but it does require effort when we follow Jesus. We find rest for our souls regardless of what activities he has called us to. Well, our faith journey is not a religious obligation. It's a call to an intimate relationship with the one who says, come to me and learn from me. As we said in the introduction, community is good for us. It's delightful. It's life-giving. And right here, Jesus is calling us into community with him. Maybe it's been a while since you thought of him that way and recognized his humility in calling you and me into deep relationship with him. The one who needs no one and is an eternal relationship, perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit is inviting you and I into that relationship. Let's join him. Let's build that friendship. Let's find rest. He is gentle and he is humble. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for an overwhelming invitation that you give to us that meets each one of us exactly where we're at and, and exactly given our behavior, our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts, our fears, our triumphs, our tragedies, our joys. We thank you that you call us to yourself. And that it's not just a, a waiting area in an office somewhere, but it is an active, dynamic life that you share with us. And so we ask for the grace to not be wise and intelligent or deem ourselves such, but to recognize our neediness and turn to you in dependence upon you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me?
Have a great week.